Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. David Bright, thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. back and we thought perhaps this week's episode, episode number 22, might be the finale for the season, but clearly it is not, and uh, we have a couple more yet to go, I think maybe two more, uh, not that kind of confirmation on that just yet, but I'm sure you will have confirmation by the time you listen to this show, and you can certainly send that along to me. Anyway, before we talk about this week's episode, we need to answer your email, so let's start on Facebook with Claude, who asks... I'm sorry to lose hope with this show. Seems like every assumption anymore is such a stretch. I used to really look forward to Tuesday nights. Now, am I alone? Claude, it has been a tough season for sure. And no, you're not alone in your feelings here. For one, my wife really is barely hanging in there. Uh, The last couple of weeks, she didn't make it through the entire show. She did this week, I think. And it remains to be seen if the show can, in the long run, basically win her back, right? And as I've said, she is an eight-year veteran watcher, but I'm still, me personally, 100% all in here. I mean, I get the frustration on your part, Claude, and on my wife's for sure. But in my mind, even a poor show about Oak Island is better than most other shows on television. And this is not a poor show by any means. It has its challenges, but uh, it is still a very well shot show. Um, certainly well thought out. I love the subject matter. I love the people that are on the show, even if I have some frustrations with them this year as opposed to other years when I really didn't. Um, you know, I, again, I. You know, I might be a bad person to ask, though. I mean, I'm hardly the average television viewer here, right? I mean, I'm, I'm all in on Oak Island no matter what. Um, hang in there, Claude. At least let's see what the end of the season looks like before we really start jumping ship, right? I mean, I just, just hang on for a couple more. And then what I would suggest to a lot of people is, I mean, it really does look like we're going to get back to some some sense of normalcy next year. I, I'm not sure, um, you know, what it might mean for the dig, but or who they can bring on to help them. That's been the big challenge, right? We've been used to a lot of the newer viewers have not been used to this type of show. Those of us who have been fans of the show for eight years realize that this season has been very much like the first couple of seasons. There's you know, a drill rig and you know guys with shovels and some excavators, and that's really it. There's no big, big coffer dam or humongous cans being thrust into the ground or anything like that. So it's been sort of a throwback kind of season. Um, So in that regard, I'm not disappointed with it at all. But maybe next year we can get back to something like we've seen the last couple of years, something where we can really, you know, dig deep in here um, and get, you know, and, and, and get back to what maybe some of the newer viewers are used to. I don't know. I'd say hang on, at least for some of next year. (laughs) Thank you, Claude. Staying on Facebook, let's hear now from Eric, who has a short question for us, a few short questions. He writes, uh, okay, one, is weather really the one calling the shots when it comes to the season, or is it shooting production issues? Okay, let's answer these one at a time, because he's got three or four here. Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both, although I'm not at all connected with the production or anything like that. The weather in Nova Scotia will most assuredly impact any outdoor project like this. 
But I'm sure there are also other factors as well, meaning I'm sure the production company, the various contractors, you know, don't schedule to do much outdoor work in December or January. So even if the weather isn't as bad as it can be, they're just not they're just not scheduling to do that because of the potential. Right. You know what I mean? I think it's all kind of one sort of factor all sort of ball together. Uh, number two, he writes, where the hell is Dr. Spooner when you pull a finished piece of wood out of the depths of the swamp? I mean, probably teaching, right? I mean, you got to think that um, Dr. Spooner is not a television star. He's not a contracted uh, cast member of a show. He's a college professor and he's, you know, with a job to attend to. And he comes here as part of that job and, you know, to take part in all this, which is, I'm sure, fascinating for him. Um, But as the fall approached, classes began again. And uh, my guess is his time probably became limited. We see him today, but I I don't think he's... um, I don't think his life revolves around uh, Oak Island like some of the other people you're seeing here for sure. Uh, Okay, number three, he writes, The swamp has quickly become my favorite place to dig. Well, I mean, (laughs) Eric, for sure. Um, It's been very compelling, and it looks like it'll continue to be that way at least into next year. Uh, Number four, do you think the lack of artifacts means the place was, quote-unquote, cleaned when whomever did it left? There's just so little for so much work that has been done there. Okay, well... That seems to be what the archaeologists are thinking here. And for right now, that's good enough for me, really. Um, It certainly seems weird to them that they're finding so few, but it also seems like we're getting more and more starting to turn up here um, as we continue this dig. Uh, We'll see how this all ends. Again, the hard thing for everything, what I would love one day is for them to put out something, a map that shows this is exactly where this was pulled out of wherever it was pulled out of. And some place along, such as this road, that's a great little piece of context, but they never really do that. Anyway, he finishes uh, five. I would watch a spinoff of Aaron and Miriam doing different archaeological digs. Thanks for the pods. I know it's a lot of work, but it's really appreciated. Great stuff, Eric. Thank you so much for all your questions. and, and I think they're all good good ones to talk about. Okay, we got a few on Facebook here this week, so let's keep them going. Here's one from Sean who writes, Hi, Dave. I am new to your podcast, having very recently come across them in Spotify. They are a great source of extended information beyond what the show chooses to show us. I have loved your podcast, tracking the dig history on the island, and your interviews. You paint a clearer picture than the show. Thank you. Uh, my question is, how does the swamp, the stone road uncovered in this series relate to the other stone features discovered in the swamp in previous seasons? The show doesn't create any links or provide any context of how this all fits together. Perhaps they did, but I missed it. Uh, to me, this is a pretty important question. Lastly, the finished wood railing discovered recently is very interesting, and I hope we get to unearth a whole lot more before the season ends, or perhaps it's bait for next season. (laughs) You're going to find that out soon. Anyway, keep up the good work. On that last part about the railing, um, you know, stay tuned, like I said. Uh, As far as the stone road is concerned and the lack of context presented by the show, you are 100% correct. It is a very popular refrain for me to complain about that. Um, They have not really done that well for us, if at all, um, for many projects, not just this one. Uh, I mean, maybe occasionally with a quick visual or a remark, maybe, but that's usually it. My hope is, like I said, when, when all this is over, when the season is over, we can get something that'll give us a little more context and some better visuals. I would love nothing more than a wrap-up episode that does all this stuff for us. But I, I guess they feel like that's just for us who are really all in and not for the average person just popping by and watching an episode. I don't know. 
because uh, then we'll have a better idea of the entirety of what's been found this season and really what the swamp now looks like and what everything is under there. Great question. Come back to me at the end of the season with this question, and let's go through it again and see if we can conclude anything. Now let's finish up with Facebook. Um, I think the name is Lavelle's. It's hard to read. I think this is... Um, some, I'm not sure about the name on this, but anyway, you'll know who you are. Uh, hey, Dave. I'm uh, Anishinaabe, which I think I'm saying that right, <laughs> but I live in uh, in the Mi'kmaq, uh, or as you know, in Nova Scotia. I think I say that Mi'kmaq. I forget how you say that. I used to know. It's the actual um, uh, local First Nations word for Nova Scotia, right, for that area. Uh, I live at Antigonish. I think I'm also saying that right. So I've always been captivated by the story of Oak Island. Uh, one thing I want to clear up that I hear uh, you talk a lot about is the ground count, Grand Council flag. And uh, just before we continue to interrupt here, that is the flag of the Mi'kmaq Nation um, that we often see related to a flag of the Templar Cross. You can look it up. You see exactly what I'm talking about. Anyway, he continues. I just wanted to point out that the Grand Council flag isn't the Mi'kmaq national symbol. Uh, it was imposed by the church post-contact, so definitely not old enough to be from the Templars during their exodus. Just something I hear often when reading uh, or learning about the subject that honestly drives me kind of nuts because we didn't even use flags like that as far as I know. The Grand Council wasn't even around until the 1760s. Anyway, love the podcast. I've been bringing through, uh, binging through them and almost all caught up now finally. Thank you so much for that information. Man, oh man. The right, uh, what, what the writer is talking about here, um, like I said, is the flag we've talked about before. The one that is considered the Grand Council flag. It looks like a Templar cross. Anybody trying to tie the Templars to Nova Scotia almost always brings this up. But obviously we have some context we can finally put it in. Fascinating stuff. And I promise you I'll keep that information that you just gave me in mind if we ever bring that Grand Council flag up again. Now, Honestly, let me just say this. That's why I started this podcast, right? That's why I wanted to make my journey of looking into Oak Island public for things just like this. <laughs> Without that podcast, I would never have heard from you, and, and, and I would never have been corrected on that very, very popular misconception. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Let's head over to the emails and begin with Steve, who writes, Dave, discovered you over a year ago during lockdown and have been listening every week since. My first email, as a fellow engineer, Marty knows dang well that any non-Ferris target could be lots of things besides treasure, as he states at the beginning of the show. Possibilities other than gold, silver include bronze, cast iron cannons, objects made of wrought iron, lead, copper, tin, etc., Heck, it could even be plutonium, <laughs> platinum, or some even more rare, valuable metal deposited by aliens. Best regards, Steve. I love the aliens part there, Steve. Uh, you hit that right on the head here, didn't you? You know, um, listen, is it me or are the dig team members taking a larger part in the hyperbole nowadays than they ever really did before? I mean, it was always the narrator's territory, right? I, I mean, we expected out of Jack Begley and Gary Drayton for sure, um, but I don't think that Marty and 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 Rick and some of these have really taken that big a part in it. Now it feels like they are, and they just kind of need to tamp it down a little bit in my mind. Um, it makes it sound like they're not honest brokers sometimes. I don't. I know they're not. They don't mean to be. And editing could be playing a big part here in, in this all as well. You know. But the point still remains a good one. Thank you, Steve. Um, keep those emails coming. Now let's go to our friend Ginger, who writes. We've heard from Ginger before. 
Uh, Henrik in Norway wrote in and asked, why aren't they putting cameras down in the six-inch boreholes? This was an e- She's referring to an email from last week. She continues, I agree 100%. The hole in the swamp that Rick put his arm in needs a camera too. If it is really open like a tunnel, I believe it is, you could see the inside of the tunnel. Stick your hand in there with your cell phone turned on and record a video. Move it around a little <laughs> to see if anything is visible. Or turn on the flash and take a blast of pictures. Ginger, I'm going to give you the answer that I've given to this same type of question before, both on the podcast and from fans um, who've written me things like this. Um, I never assume, just from what I know of these guys and their dedication, I never assume they don't do the obvious thing. Uh, instead, I assume they actually do those things, but then when they do it, it produces no results. So we don't ever hear or see anything about them doing that stuff. Um, of course they can stick a phone in there, right? I mean, Rick knows that. They all know that. There's no reason not to, right? And and there's no reason to think that they wouldn't think of that. That's just kind of where my thought is on all this. So the the more, like I said, the more likely thing is they did those things, they found nothing, and they just cut that out of the scene because the 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 directors and the editors are always trying to leave us with if there's nothing there, if they find a hole and nothing's in it, they always try to leave us with some carrot, some way in the back of our mind to make us think that maybe there was something mysterious here. That's it's a it's a way they do stuff. So anyway. <laughs> Thank you very much for the email. Keep it coming, Ginger. Great to hear from you again. Uh, let's go to Mike now who writes, Hello, Dave. I'm a longtime listener, and this is my first email to you. I absolutely love your podcast. Thank you. And I've listened to every one since the very first episode and consider it a necessary companion to the Oak Island show. Two things. One, and I apologize if it's been asked and I forgot, but has anyone considered that the stone road in the swamp may, simp- may simply be connected to the thriving farms that were on the island, perhaps to sell cabbage, etc.? Would love to hear your thoughts about this. The other thing is a kind of a throwback. In an old episode, <laughs> a guest in the crackpot session claimed to have translated the 90-foot stone, and that, incredibly, it's said to put corn in the, ho- in the hole. So he was not only deciphered an imaginary artist's rendering, but thinks popcorn will, what exactly, rise up out of the money pit bearing a chest of gold. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. Uh, okay, just having some fun. Not even sure what made me think of that. Uh, seriously, though, the show, thanks. Uh, love the show. Thanks for keeping the company uh, on my daily commute to work. Mike from Rhode Island, I believe that says. Uh, Mike, I don't remember that crackpot session. Um, what season was that? Anyway, hilarious stuff. Uh, that's why things like that, especially in the earlier parts of this of this uh, show, are the reason why um, it got the phrase crackpot session. <laughs> Right. We don't get as many crackpots now as we once did. We used to get a quite a quite a quite a parade of them, quite a cast of characters there. Uh, anyway. Um, OK. As far as the Stone Road goes, that's what the dating needs to tell us. Right. I mean, so far, the dating results have been a little all over the place. And we're getting to the point now where we kind of need the archaeologists and everybody here to kind of get behind a date that they think is most likely. And then you could start drawing conclusions based on that and maybe doing some research into those time frames to maybe try to un, you know unearth some history that you might not know of. Um, I kind of think that's what we need to do by the end of this season or certainly by the end of the next season if we're not going to be able to continue the, uh, the full swamp dig here. 
Anyway, great email, Mike. Let's go now again to our friend Jock, who always gets me working, although I think now I may have him working. Anyway, hi, Dave. Thanks for your podcast, your dedication and hard work. You are making me work my brain as well. Uh, as you and your listener comments are turning us all into archaeologists and want to be treasure hunters in our armchairs, that's for sure. By the way, I am one of the probably many geologists who are listening to your show, and I would like to make a few comments about the drumlins. You recently commented on Gordon Fader's work and book with Joy Steele, whose theories I tend to support. He described Oak Island as two drumlins with two with a low-lying area or the swamp in between. A drumlin is basically a hill that was created by glacial action. Generally, they are elongated oval-shaped hills with a long axis parallel to the orientation of ice flow and with an up ice face that is generally steeper than the down ice face. This quote came from Wikipedia. The fact that the two high points on the isle- of the island are drumlins does not really matter. It's evidence that there, are, there were a lot of glacial action and thus lots of gravel and large rock deposits all around. Both these sediments influence the story, I believe. The glacial period ending about 10,000 years ago, long before the depositors, he writes, uh, but it affected the present landscape. This stack of glacial ice is in this part of the world was up to a kilometer thick. Imagine the weight. As it moves from the north, this thick, heavy ice scrapes the pre-existing landscape like a bulldozer. Giant rocks and gravel are picked up and embedded in the ice, and as the ice retreats and melts, all these sediments drop. For example, big rocks drop, and some might take random forms, which, with a little bit of selective imagination, a cross appears. All the gravel is dropped, which would then provide nice porous beds of water that can circulate back and forth, perhaps with the changing tide, natural flood tunnels. These comments sound a bit skeptic, but my quote-unquote belief in the treasure position changes from time to time, but lately it has become more negative when I clearly think they deliberately spin the data into crazy ideas. How many times in the last few weeks did we hear them say on the show or on the trailers, we must be at the money pit? I think Craig even said that, and he is very conservative. But I still think the mystery is still a mystery that needs to be solved or partially solved. Not sure if I'll eat my hat if treasure is discovered. Cheers, Jock. Jock, uh, thank you again for your insight and your work. Uh, Let me be honest, even from reading, I mean, you do a great job here in putting all that into sort of a dopey podcaster's phraseology. So that's helpful for me, and I kind of get an idea. Um, You know, I'm skeptical of Nolan's Cross. I've been told that, you know, and they certainly show it as being incredibly accurate uh, as far as its angles. Um, I've never had an impartial person tell me that, right? I've never had somebody who's not involved in the treasure hunt show me a survey that tells me that these stones are perfectly accurate and aren't just don't just happen to be there. Uh, I also don't know if there are others in the area that we're just ignoring, right? I mean, are those the only, what is it, one, two, three, like five stones? Or are there others that we're just not bringing in to the uh, show here? It seems like from when they look around, but there are. There are other ones that are there and ones that don't line up with the cross and then therefore are ignored. Um It's difficult, and you've given a great explanation here. Uh, Let me be honest. The geology part of all this is where I can really get lost. Uh, Much of what skeptics, good skeptics, rely on is the science here, right? The geology. Unfortunately, my science brain really stopped growing, I think, somewhere in middle school. (laughs) 
So I'm really depending on you guys and Jock and other listeners who are much smarter than me to kind of get me to understand this stuff. History I got. Geology, not so much. And you even start to lose me in some of this stuff, which seemed like you were really trying to dumb it down for me. Anyway, thank you as always, Jock. Let's go now to Daniel, who says, I had decided to rewatch the series from the beginning. When I got to series two, episode one, there was a scene that stopped me in my tracks. How could I have missed this? How could this have been dropped from the narrative? So the episode has the team metal detecting in the w- in winter over a frozen swamp. If this were a comic book, it would be a valuable one. It's Gary's first appearance. <laughs> How about that? I love the way you put that, Day. That's great. Uh, they are discussing metal detection targets that appear and then vanish. It is basically explained that metals slowly dissolve over time and that the minerals in the water give off readings that quickly disappear when disturbed. Then Clotworthy, the narrator, goes into a between-scenes history lesson. Here is where it gets interesting. The following is Clotworthy's words verbatim. Quote, During the Elizabethan era, and I won't do my Clotworthy uh, impression here, during the Elizabethan era, the island was thought to be rich with deposits of gold ore. But after a British mining expedition returned with 1,100 tons of iron pyrite sulfide, or fool's gold, the island's extensive maze of underground mine shafts was quickly shut down. And then he stops here. I'm going to, and, and, and I'm going to add a little bit more to what, um, to what Daniel included. Uh, Clotworthy continued here, uh, quickly shut down, or was it? According to this theory, a handful of the mine's original investors believed the abandoned tunnels might serve another possibly more strategic purpose. It would become a virtually impenetrable vault for the world's most priceless treasures. So anyway, the Daniel continues. Extensive maze, 1,100 tons. What, really? Nobody ever mentions this? 1,100 tons? That is 2,200,000 pounds of ore hauled off Oak Island. Wouldn't that explain the paved roads, the ship's wharf, the ring bolts, the ox shoes, previously unknown tunnels? Actually, to me, it wraps the story pretty good. Wraps up the story pretty good. If you could please discuss this on the show, I would really appreciate it. Daniel, that's a great question. In word, you've been sort of had by the by the narrator. I went back and watched this episode. I remember this. Uh, I remember... So much criticism coming from the way this was said and the way it was written. And that's the reason why I added the rest of it to what you've written or what you've, what you, what, you know, got you thinking here. The part where it says quickly shut down or was it according to this theory? That's what's going on here. Um, It's an incredible, honestly. It's an incredibly poor piece of writing. It's one of the original poor pieces of writing that got a lot of people like me got our you know our, our backs up on why it was written this way to make it sound like this was fact. Um, he doesn't do that as much as he did here. He doesn't always do that, but he used to be guilty of that um, and or the writers used to be guilty of that. Uh, the word theory comes in way too late in this written passage. It should have been right up front when he was when they were describing what they were looking at here, because that's where it belongs. Because what Clotworthy is referring to is the Martin Frobisher theory. Now we talked about this once before a few weeks ago, but here it goes again. Frobisher was an English explorer. He was a privateer um, during the Elizabethan era who came to the new world looking for the Northwest Passage. 
he was also pretty confident he would find gold, which he was going to use to pay for his habit of very expensive journeys across (laughs) unknown seas. And while he was in Canada, he actually thought he found gold. And he he, he he mined out tons of an ore, which ended up being a rock called Hornblende, which is essentially a worthless rock. Um, Now, there is this theory that says Frobisher actually came and did this on Oak Island, but there's no reason to believe that. There's There's no historical evidence of that. In fact, if my memory serves... When he was doing this stuff, he was way up in Baffin Island, which is like up near Greenland. And I think there's even a bay there named after him for his time there. Now, it's possible he may have sailed as far south as the Labrador coast of the Canadian mainland, which is like just on the southern side of the body of water Baffin Island is on. But that's still a very long way off. But the weird thing is the way Clotworthy says this, right? He says it like it's just fact that there was a mine built here during the Elizabethan era. Daniel, it is not a fact. There is no record. There is no reason to believe that there was a mine built here by Frobisher or anyone else who came here thinking they were mining for gold. This is just another Oak Island theory, and it's honestly not a particularly good one either, but it gets talked about now and again in theorists about Frobisher coming here. Um but that was a great spot, man, and, and I'm so glad that you gave me an opportunity to talk about that again, um, and also gave me an excuse to watch season two, episode one. Go back and watch these guys. These were great old shows. It really were. It's a different show back then, and I get nostalgic for it every once in a while. Anyway, let's go now to Steve, who writes, Dave, hey there. Just finished up this week's episode. Thanks for keeping at it, even when you don't feel well. Uh, hope you heal up soon. Some random. Um, anyway, he continues. I want to stop here. Um, as you can tell, I may I still have a little bit left over. It turns out it was COVID nineteen, um, and it was. I've, so I've been stuck in my house and had plenty of time to go through your emails and all that kind of stuff over the last ten days or so. Or so I should be out of my quarantine soon. But yeah, we all got a case of it here. It was pretty bad for a couple of days there, but uh, we're all recovering nicely. So thanks to everybody for the warm wishes. Um, Anyway, he continues, some random thoughts. Has anyone else noticed that they don't seem to be subtitling Carmen Leg anymore? Glad they've stopped, as it never was difficult to understand him. The ongoing comments about, and on-air statements by, Laird Niven are interesting. He seems to be increasingly uncomfortable about being pushed to make statements that he's not prepared to make about fines. I hope he hangs tough, as I admire him for being a voice of practicality and caution, as well as archaeological discipline. I forget which listener highlighted it in the podcast episode, but it is really interesting that the tunnel they've been tracking in the Money Pit area is at about 90 feet, same depth as the claimed 90-foot stone. As I hypothesized back in late January, the paved road does seem, at least in part, to be headed towards the eye of the swamp. It's interesting, however, that the shows not mention the paved wharf at all this year. Presumably, they don't connect. It's interesting that the Oak Island saga increasingly turns towards a historical military or maritime story. Some fellowship members who were very treasure-focused have disappeared from the show or have a much diminished appearance. Take care of yourself. I hear bourbon cures all. Best, Steve. Uh, Steve, I tried scotch. Seemed to do the trick. (laughs) Uh, I I certainly wouldn't back it as a cure-all for COVID, but uh, it certainly didn't hurt. Uh, Okay. Quickly, again, as far as uh, the swamp stuff uh, all fits together, I'm, I'm just I just feel like I want to wait until the end of the season to make those conclusions, or at least try to. Uh, right now, it's still very much in the air, so um, 
let's hang on for that for a little bit. 90 foot stone comment you made is a popular one. I hear that idea a lot. Uh, but since they abandoned that search until we see more about this 87 foot, whatever it was, it doesn't seem like anyone here is willing to devote much time to it. So you know what I mean? Like uh, I'm not on site, so I got to go with what they're uncovering and what they think. And it just seems like they've gone past it. Um, as far as your last point goes, I'm going to say this. I really do think that as the search evolves, many of the dig team are no longer very hopeful or very confident in the presence of treasure. Uh, more and more, we hear them say things like, you know, finding the real story is the true treasure of Oak Island, those kinds of things. It's not good for ratings, so you can tell they don't just come out and say things like that, but it's definitely there just under the surface. Um, and you could tell that maybe they're pitching a little, you know, they're moving a little bit away from um, from the idea of treasure. And uh, any compliments you guys want to give Laird, I'm willing to read. Uh, I think Laird is one of the uh, final pieces in the skeptical puzzle out there. And there's a good reason for that. He doesn't really work for them, but that's you know, the reason why he's there. But anyway, thank you, Steve. Let's finish up now with a listener named Andy. I think it's Andy. Yes, Andy, who writes, So my only fault of your podcast is continued criticism of the narrator. Let it go mostly, but last this last episode, you read a comment from a listener who says the show needs a new one. Well, the narrator is a guy like you who was hired by a production to read a script. That's all he does. He comes into a studio, walks up to a mic, and reads what they hand him. He may not even watch the show. According to IMDb, the narrator, Robert Clotworthy, started as an actor and transitioned into voiceover work for the past 20 years. He is not credited as a writer or producer of his show. Uh, you are doing such a great job that I don't want anyone misled in any way over what's being said on your podcast. In fact, if it was up to me, you would be a great narrator for The Curse of Oak Island. Uh, thank you, Audio Andy. Andy, first, I think it's very important to point out that he's very different from me because he gets paid uh, and he doesn't write anything. <laughs> I write much more than than uh, than Mr. Clotworthy. In fact, I write everything on here. I do all the research myself. I'm not I'm not just reading a script. Um, I am writing the script as well. Um, and he gets paid. But you are what I want. I wanted to read this here because uh, I, I I feel like. Well, I wrote you back uh, on the email, so you know what I'm going to say anyway, but I think for everybody else, it's important to understand just how good an email this is. I do try my best, as often as I can, to turn my criticism more towards the writers and the producers and the editing, but sometimes I am absolutely guilty of lumping them all in together and calling it the narrator, uh, because 99 times out of 100... It isn't Clotworthy we're complaining about. It's what Clotworthy is reading. Take a great example of that thing we just we just spoke about from season two, episode one. He didn't write that. He just read it. Uh, and he doesn't know. I'm sure he doesn't know one way or another whether it's right or wrong when he's reading it. You know, it's not what he's there for. He doesn't write any of this. And as an old radio guy, I certainly know that perhaps um, I don't make that distinction clear enough here on the show. So I'm glad you did. Uh, anyway, Andy, I can't thank you enough for pointing that out here. Um, we all like to dump on him. I mean, he's very good at what he does. He's He's, he's got a great tone of voice. Uh, he's got a great inflection. He does a great job at, at showing emotion in his voice. Um, and I really do think what people say when they don't like the narrator is they don't like 
what the narrator is reading. And that's not the same thing. Anyway, thank you again to everyone who wrote in. Don't forget, if you'd like to send me an email, you can do so. Island at gmail.com. All right, so it's time to discuss Season 8, Episode 22 of The Curse of Oak Island called Be There or T-Square. Yikes. Anyway, let's begin over at the site of Samuel Ball's former home. Lot 25, I believe, right? Um, You see Laird, the aforementioned Laird Niven, is leading the work here. You can really see the difference, right, in this and the work done at the swamp. You remember last week we had a listener named Gary who wrote in and was kind of uh, critical of the way the archaeological work was being done in the swamp. Uh, a lot of the things he talked about were the things that we're seeing Laird doing here. Um, and that's the reason why it's going to take a long time and why it's very painfully, uh, you know, painstakingly done. Uh, and it may be the reason why Marty referred to them as, quote unquote, the dreaded archaeologists, because they are interested in something beyond just excavating and backhoeing everything out of the way to find what may or may not be a treasure. Anyway, Laird finds a hinge of some sort as he's doing this. It's exactly the kind of thing one would expect to find in such a project. So there's nothing really all that crazy about it. Um, he then starts to find wood laid out along what he calls the basement floor. Uh, Laird says that they're vertical boards and horizontal boards, and therefore they look like it could be a door. Uh, he later calls it perhaps a hatch or a doorway. Uh, we don't know yet if it is actually a doorway to something, or is it possibly a door that was just lying on the floor of the of the of the uh, of the the basement here? We don't know it. Anyway, Laird shows this uh, hinge to Gary, Gary Drayton, and uh, Gary says that it might be too small even for a cellar door. So we don't know what this is yet. It's going to take a while before they look at it. Wouldn't be surprised if we didn't get much uncovered this year at all. Uh, But it is great to see this process still going, and I'm hoping, and I have uh, some words out to Mr. Niven to get him on to talk about Samuel Ball and to talk about the life and times of um, somebody, you know, uh, who has become an incredible part of this story. Um, the process of uncovering what is here is being done really under the watchful eye of not only Laird Niven, who doesn't take his marching orders from the Laginas, but also from the Canadian government, who also don't take their marching orders from the Laginas. Needless to say, this is a slow process, but it is a fascinating one. All right, we got a crackpot session to talk about. Let's talk about let's talk about the latest theory session, you know, as we used to call them, the crackpot sessions here. Uh, it is in the war room. It's a meeting with much of the team, uh, as well as a theorist named Philip Stevenson, who is presenting his findings or his ideas, his theories, to a team via video conferencing. Uh, why we see this session today is due to the Freemason connection he's making here. That'll become more clear when we discuss the swamp. Uh, for this week. doesn't have anything to do with this particular session, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Now, it's important to know, I don't know who this man is. I don't know who Philip Stevenson is. I've never heard of him. Um, nor do I know what his credentials are for any of this uh, that he's talking about today. It's hard, to, it's hard to evaluate when I don't know those things, but uh, anyway, let's talk about it. He presents the team with a cipher that has symbols on it and English writing. Uh, which he says came from a Freemason of his family's um, past, from his family's past. Uh, Symbols that 
that are on this cipher look a lot like those in the um, sort of accepted representation of the 90-foot stone. It's important to keep in mind that um, there is no picture or etching of the 90-foot stone, so we don't know exactly what the symbols look like on there. We only have the memories of a few people passed down over generations. It's very, very hard to decipher whether or not that, even what you see as the 90-foot stone writing is genuine. Um, it also looks a little bit like the work done by Zena Halpern, who is um, the, the, the author of the book, To Oak Island and Beyond, Search for Ancient Secrets, The Shocking Revelations of a 12th Century Manuscript. If you haven't read that book, um, I'd recommend doing it. It's interesting reading. Uh, anyway, uh, so anyway, this, this cipher that he's presenting looks a lot like both the 90-foot stone and also Zena Halpern stuff. Um, now, is there any reason, the first question I have here from watching all this is, is there any reason to believe this cipher that he's showing us is old? It certainly doesn't look old. Um, absolutely nothing stated even proves its genuine provenance. We don't, we, I don't even, he doesn't talk about the background. All he talks about is that they found it in the archives of an old family member who was a Freemason. Um he says that the symbols in here, just like the symbols uh, on the uh, Zena Halpern map, um, which is called La Formule, uh, are French and translate into French, which is strange because there also are obviously very English words written with it. I don't know why you would do that. I don't know why you would write some of it in French and code and the rest of it in, in English, uh, unless that's just what we're opining here is that somebody who was putting notes onto something that they found. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, Mr. Stevenson says the symbols are navigational directions. And uh, he thinks that the that one of the things written on there is the altar, um, which was mentioned in one of the English lines, uh, is where this all navigational direction leads from. And he thinks that it is part of, it is actually the center of Nolan's cross. Um. There's not a whole lot of reason for me to think that's what it was, other than this was a good guess on his part. That's, that's, really, that's really the only evidence presented. Uh, the cipher then gives out a series of directions. There's no reason really to go through all that again. Um, that makes Stevenson believe the treasure will be found at a spot that seems to coordinate with one of the non-ferrous targets found by the Behringer survey, which we've discussed so many times over the last few weeks. So as I said, while this whole theory is certainly fun to watch, um, we just don't know if it's genuine. And I have no idea if it's being followed correctly, if these directions are being followed correctly. Oh, and, and, and what makes us so sure, <laughs> here's another question I have. What makes us so sure that this piece of paper has anything to do with Oak Island in the first place? I mean, I, I don't see Oak Island mentioned anywhere on here. So I'm just not, I'm curious as to how we've come here. But anyway, perhaps these questions were answered. You know, perhaps they asked this, Marty asked this, and we didn't get those answers. Um, anyway, the next scene shows the team drilling down on lot 20, I think, uh, digging on this target that he's, that, that Mr. Stevenson showed them. And unsurprisingly, really for me, they find nothing. You know, it's easy to poke holes. It's easy even to poke fun at these theorist meetings and for me to say things like call them crackpot sessions. But let me just repeat something that I've said 
many, many, many times about these scenes. We are honestly seeing a tiny fraction of what was filmed and what was said by this theorist. Perhaps all of these questions that I have here were answered, and for whatever reason, they were edited out. Knowing what I know about the producers and how they treat these scenes, honestly, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Okay, so we got to finish up over at the swamp. Um, the episode begins with Rick, Charles, and Doug, I think, driving one of the familiar black SUVs over to the swamp to continue the search for the wood found last week. That little finished piece of wood they thought might have been from a railing, uh, which was underneath eight feet of mud and dirt. Fascinating stuff. Um, the guys call Marty to bring him up to speed, and he asks if they found what he calls Bravo Tango. Bravo Tango. A code name, a code name that everyone in that in that truck knew and all laughed about. I wonder why they feel they need a code name. Anyway, I assume he means by Bravo Tango, he means treasure, but I don't know. Uh, right from the off, Marty mentions the rain becoming an issue. And soon we can see where this is all going, right? And you start to deflate a bit. Billy says, quote, we are at a depth where it should be sand and gravel, but it's not sand and gravel. Interesting. Great little piece of information. Rick also adds, quote, they believe the bucket was sliding across a massive wooden something. Interesting stuff. You can tell, again, after a few bucket loads uh, that we're not going to see anything recovered in this episode. Uh, we're not going to get any answers today. And like I said, it became very deflating very quickly, to say the least. Uh, they do see a big timber. It looks for a second like maybe they could have uncovered it, pulled that out. It, they didn't. I know that some dirt collapsed on top of it. Uh, that was disappointing. Not really sure about that. Uh, but again, I'm not there. Uh, narrator says that, and this is when you really feel the air come out of <laughs> all of us, right? Because the narrator then says that what they're going to do is wait until a coffer dam can be installed around this area next year. So if you believe, folks, that they were about to uncover a ship, you got a few more months before you can wait and see that. Now, back on the eastern side of the swamp, um, over at the Swamp Road, we see the next scene over here a couple minutes later. Um, and out of the spoils of Billy's digging, Gary pulls out what he says is a mason square. Uh, the next scene, we have this piece all cleaned up in the interpretive center, and Gary and Doug are showing it to Marty. Um, it seems silly to have to say this, but I feel it's worth saying. Finding what you think is a Mason square does not mean Freemasons buried treasure on Oak Island. Just important to remember that. Uh, and now you know why we heard from theorist Philip Stevenson when we did in this particular episode, because it does relate somehow to Freemasons tangentially, right? Later on, Gary and David Fernetti are detecting and find a huge iron something or other a uh, big long pole with looks like a, a ring at the end. Um, the guys opine that it could be a ring bolt, but it's only speculation at this point. They bring it over to Aaron Taylor, and he points out that it's been very, very badly burned. And uh, for some reason, he says it could be from a ship. I'm not spe sure specifically why he thought that. Um, let's see if we get some follow-up on this next week. It looks like we just might. Um, the episode finishes in the war room where Craig Tester tells them C-14 dating, carbon dating from this Mason Square uh, that we found early in the episode. 
The dates are 1632 to 1668. Again, very pre-searcher. And also, our friend James McQuiston has another little piece of information to celebrate. uh, Because that fits perfectly into his timeline for his theory. Fascinating theory. Go look him up if you don't already and start reading his books. I'd start from the latest and work your way back. Uh, In the end... It's hard to have been let down, to, to not have been let down by this episode, really. Um, last week, we had what blacksmithing expert Carmen Legs could, said could be a piece off of a 15th century canon. Marty Lagina then said he wanted to, quote unquote, get it in the hands of an armament expert. Yet we didn't get any follow up this year on this potentially exciting piece, and we were all hoping we would. Now, yes. For those of you active on social media for Oak Island, I am aware of the other theories of what this piece could be. And that makes, to me, a follow-up even more necessary. Yet we got silence on the subject. Which might be all we need to know, really, about whether... It's just like the lipstick, right? Um, Maybe we now know what it is, and they just don't want to tell us because, once again, the editors never want to put an X through anything in our minds. Either way, certainly let down when it comes to the artifact... Um, we, we, we were hoping would be a really interesting one. And even worse, after seeing what could be part of a ship clearly being dug out of the swamp last week, or part of something, a finished piece of wood under a huge amount of dirt and mud, um, nature steps in and we get nothing. Now, I'm not assigning signing blame on this one. Mother Nature seems to be the main culprit here for sure. Uh, but still, We were all anticipating quite the episode this week, and yet we get nothing but a few shots of dirty water being scooped out and quickly replaced by nature. Fingers crossed that this isn't the last week we hear this this year for this season on either or both of these, but it does look like that's going to be the case. So that's going to do it for another episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Uh, shameless plug time. I produce another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend and old radio host Chris Poe, he's been in the business for a long time, sit down over a drink or two and we talk about pubs, talk a lot of politics, although less so than we used to when we were really bored during the lockdown. Uh, we talk a lot about music now. He's done some great interviews. We're going to get back to talking about the paranormal too. Basically anything two guys would talk about at a bar. Give it a listen. You can find it sit downs and sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual podcast places. Also, if you're enjoying the Digging Oak Island podcast, I ask you please to give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And a big thank you to everyone who has left us a five star rating already. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to do that. But most especially, thank you for the kind words. Don't forget, you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. Just put that in the search bar and it'll come up. And again, if you have any questions or comments you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email, Island at gmail.com. And just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or direct message on social media, keep in mind I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read, please just make a note of that for me. And I'll answer you as best I can just through the email. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.